0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Robert Parrish on celebrating his trade to Boston, the big three, and getting into a skirmish with Michael Jordan. It's the Wednesday Locked On Celtics. Millies,
1: let's go! The Jay's back with the vengeance. Back. All the real Celtics fans in attendance. Ooh. This is the truth, like 34. Yeah. This like walking in the garden when you hear the roars
0: John Corrales here of MassLive.com welcoming you back to this historical deep dive. We're in the 1980s, and if you've missed the first two episodes of this week, you missed my conversation with Danny Ainge, who was very kind in spending an hour with me talking about his time in Boston, how things looked from his perspective in Boston over the eight years that he was in town. This episode is going to uh, be an interview with Robert Parrish, but this interview was actually done a few years ago. And I thought this would be perfect to kind of re-release right now. Uh, This was done before this podcast was even the Locked On Celtics podcast. It was done when it was the Rain and Jays podcast. So it's me and Jay King. So Jay King is on this podcast asking questions of Robert Parrish, but it was done so long ago, not that long ago, but, It was done long enough ago where we didn't have the listenership that we have now. I mean, frankly, uh, the show has grown thanks to your ratings and reviews and sharing the podcast that it's grown to be quite popular. And I thought, look, we've got a lot of new listeners. We've got a lot of people, even though I've tweeted out the link to this piece, it hasn't gone out into people's feeds again. And I thought this would be a perfect opportunity during this hiatus talking about the 80s to talk about a guy who was there, part of the big three. And so this conversation was really great with Robert Parrish. We get into his arrival in Boston, how he celebrated that trade from Golden State. We talk all about the big three uh, and then his departure. And there's even a Michael Jordan story in there about how he was challenged and he kind of like stood up to Michael Jordan. So in this era of The Last Dance and everybody focused on Jordan again, that's a good story to hear. So here's the conversation. Again, a conversation that was done a few years ago. So Jay King is on this podcast. Uh, So it's me and Jay King in our conversation with Robert Parrish. Chief, thank you for joining us today. Uh, You were known as uh, a pretty good jump shooter uh, as a center. If you played today, do you think that you could fit into the style and maybe extend your range? Could you get out to the corner and hit a three in today's game?
2: <laughs> no, sir. I am not a three-point shooter. My range is out to 18 feet. And this about uh, is for as I can shoot it accurately. But be- because of the uh, freedom and space that it's created... By the perimeter game today, I think I would fit in effectively because I can go outside. So I would be an inside-outside player.
0: So you would hit the post first, would you? What do you think oh, about no. these? What do you think about these guys that, uh, that you're being asked to shoot from three? What, what would you tell a coach today if he said, "Hey, let's let's get you out into the corner. Let's let's see what you can do."
2: Well, he, well the coach got respect me because I re- I know my limitations. And so I know that's not me. Uh, one, one player that mirrors my game, I think, is Paul Gasol that plays for the Chicago Bulls. He has the ability to go out to 18 feet and he plays inside, outside. So his game mirrors my game, in my opinion. Even though he has better range, I, I think he's capable of shooting three-pointers. That,
3: that's an interesting comparison. I, I never... I never linked those two together, but that is a good comparison. Uh, Now, now you you played more than 20 seasons in the NBA. How did you stay healthy and motivated for that long?
2: Well, uh, obviously, I have uh, had a, uh, a love affair for the game, and I never sustained a major injury that played a part. Genetics played a part. And to hop on that old cliche, I kept my... I kept myself in, in uh, great physical condition year round, which most pro athletes do, anyways.
3: Now, was there any trick? Did you do yoga? Anything like that? Was it? Was there a trick to it?
2: Oh uh, well, uh, stretching definitely played a part. I took some yoga classes and uh, also took uh, some martial arts. I studied martial arts for ten, twelve years and uh, became a on stretching. And also the yoga, obviously, uh, focuses on stretching. So I did a lot of stretching. And I think that enabled me to keep my my flexibility and and keep me agile. Because as you age, you get stiffer, a little tighter, and you're not as mobile. So I think that the stretching played a major uh, part, a reason, why I was able
3: to play as long as I played. What kind of martial arts did you do? Kung fu. Kung Fu? Now, did, did you become a black belt?
2: How, how far did you reach? They guess, don't in They way? don't get belts, you know, okay. in uh in kung fu. But so, I, I'll how, just say this: I can take care of myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will not test that at all. Uh, but we, I'm sure Bill Lambert can attest to that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> another.
3: another a, 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 another guy who can attest to that Michael Jordan. You kind of got into it with him at practice. What happened there?
2: Well, uh, Michael uh, has a tendency to test his teammates, especially the, the new faces on the team. And I think it was more of a test than a threat. He was just testing, you know, my reaction to his being a bully. And so I, I didn't back down. You know, he said he would kick my butt, and I told him if he feel that strongly about it, come and get some. <laughs> that was the end of it. You know, we didn't have a another uh, what would you call it? Confrontation, if you will. How, it, was, how cl- it was just a test. I, I, I like to I, I don't think. At least I didn't read anything into it. I think it was just a test to see how, how, how I respond.
3: How cl- how close were you to actually fighting? Michael Jordan?
2: Oh, there was he was at half court, and I was uh, at the top of the key. <laughs> and, and, and also, I think he was a little tick, ticked off, too, because the second team was kicking their butt at the time, and I was talking <laughs> <punkin'> trash, too. <laughs> yeah,
0: see, uh. a lot of people don't think of you as a trash talker. Larry was the trash talker, right? Yes.
2: But what,
0: you, what? you, go ahead.
2: But uh, only the only reason why I was talking trash to, to Michael was because he and Scotty was enjoying uh, their dominance over the second team, and then when the second team finally got a center that could that could uh, enhance their abilities, the first team no no longer could uh, enjoy dominance. Over the seventeen, so I just want to let them know that they're no longer the king on the block.
0: That's amazing. Uh, let's let's go back a little bit to the trade because right now, this new generation of Celtics fans they're they're enjoying this pro- the progression of a trade that could be one of the the best trades in franchise history. But you happen to be p- part of the best trade that essentially brought you and Kevin McHale to Boston that created the Big Three. So think back to that day when you first got the call in Golden State, you're going to Boston. What were the thoughts that were going through your head at that time?
2: I was surprised initially. But once I hung up from the Warriors, after they called me and told me that I was being traded to the Boston Celtics, I cheered and I jumped up and down. (laughs) and I treated myself to a stiff drink. (laughs) because <laughs> i went from pregatory to the penthouse in my opinion yeah yeah that's... i think that worked out well oh you very well for me anyway i can't speak for the warriors but for, for me in my career i've been trained to the self to change the trajectory of my career
3: that that's that's so funny because our next question was how much did you think that changed your personal career, career trajectory? Obviously, it helped you play for some incredible teams, but personally, how much did it change?
2: Oh, it, it, it gave me uh, uh, incentives, and I was motivated to uh, play the game again because I was seriously thinking about having a, a very short basketball career before the trade because of, of all the losing that I experienced with the Warriors and, 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 and uh, being blamed. For for the Warriors' demise, I understand it because I was the number one player taken, and the blame falls on my shoulder. But basketball is not an individual sport; it's a team sport, and I just feel like the team was, was a symbol of misfits and and too much independent thinking. Guys are thinking about themselves as opposed to the team, and that was so what was so rewarding about being with the Celtics because they was all about team. You know, you play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. So it was refreshing for me because that's my mentality.
0: So the man who played more than anybody in the NBA may have actually played a very short career had you stayed in Golden State.
2: Oh, no no question about it. With the, with the players I was playing with, I could not get them to understand the benefits and the rewards of playing together. They didn't get it for whatever reason.
3: And and then then you go to the Celtics and they do get it. Uh, one of the teams that you played for that was pro- probably the, I would assume that you would agree it's the best team you played for the 85-86 Celtics.
2: Ooh. Did you guys
3: have as much fun as it seemed? What what was it like playing for that particular team?
2: It was a it was a, a beautiful time in in my professional career playing with like minded people. We're all on the same page competing for one goal, and that's to achieve excellence in, in, in regards to the NBA championship. And, and I and I, I have so much respect for that team because everybody on that team put their egos aside for the team. And that's rare. You're talking about some major egos in that locker room. And we sacrifice our egos. To try to achieve a common goal, and that's why I have so much respect for those players.
0: Was that? A col- a, I'm sorry. Was that a collective thing? Like, how do you? Because that is the same thing that is said of the new Big Three era with Garnett and Pierce and Ray Allen. That egos were sacrificed to achieve that common goal. Was there a particular player? in that locker room that kind of led that charge? Did somebody have to be put in line? How does how does something like that happen? Or does everybody just realize it at the same time? We have to play a certain way.
2: It starts at the top. Red preaches selflessness. starts with him. And then the coach preached the same rhetoric. And then the players got to buy into that philosophy because it won't work if the players don't buy into it. And we all wanted to. We all wanted to be winners. We all wanted to be champions, and that played a part also. So the, the red and the coaches really didn't have to do a, a, much of a selling job in terms of making sacrifices because it's something that the players wanted anyways. And we all believe you can never have enough championships ever. And I think it's one of the reasons why Larry Kevin and myself are Hall of Famers. I don't think it's so much about our individual talent. I think it says a lot about the great teams that we were a part of. I think that's one of the main reasons why we are are Hall of Famers today, in
4: my opinion. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories, it's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every
0: day. You're up-to-date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Here we go! John Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen the Locked On NBA Podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet, wherever you get your podcasts.
5: You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
3: Now, now, do you ever go back and watch highlights of that team and think, man, we could really
2: pass it? I don't have to. It's itched in my brain. I don't need to watch any field. I experienced it firsthand. I only, only my own my only grits. when I think back on my career, especially when I was with the Celtics. I wish I had taken more time to enjoy the journey. I really, I really didn't understand how special it was and how and, and, uh, how rewarding and gratifying the experience was until after I retired.
3: So what, uh, at, what at, at what moment did it hit you, kinda?
2: Well, it was maybe a year later. I would I would back on on my career about a year after I had retired. I just sitting down one day idly thinking about a lot of different things and then My career uh, appeared on on my noggin, and then I started thinking about, I had one hell of a career. And then, then, how many players can say that they played with, let's see, I think I played with like seven or eight Hall of Famers? Think about that for a second. How many players can say that? How How many athletes can say that?
0: No, you have definitely had a, a very storied career. There's no doubt about that. Uh, your, your teams are the teams that really I grew up on. And how much did you guys really hate the Pistons? Like legitimately in your hearts, like, or how much of it was just professional rivalry?
2: I, I think hate is too strong of a word. But it was a very healthy dislike, not only for the Pistons, but the 76ers, uh, the Lakers. uh, I think Dallas was a pretty good team. The Dallas Mavericks, we didn't like them either. San Antonio, we didn't like them either. Uh, uh, Everything that we considered competition for the championship, we had a healthy dislike for them.
0: So when, when a guy like LeBron James comes out and says, Yeah, I'd love to play with this guy and that guy and that guy and that guy for a few years, and they're all on different teams, how does that strike you? How do you think the attitudes have changed and why have they changed so much over the years?
2: Well, it, uh, I think the correct terminology would be the millenniums. It, things have changed. It's a new era. Uh, I, I, I think the, the, players of the day, not only the players, but young people today are more accepting, uh, are more liberated in their thinking, and uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's easier for the players today to embrace the philosophy of, of uh, joining forces or, or ranks with their contemporaries to enhance their careers. Personally, I don't see nothing wrong with it. Because uh, I guess in a roundabout way, you can say I did it, even though it wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't under my control or my power. I was traded, but I joined forces with, with two hell of a players too. So technically, you can say that about me, even though I was <laughs> traded. I didn't go on my own free will, but I did the same thing. When you think about my career.
3: I get the feeling you probably would have gone on your own free will anyway, based on your thoughts about the Warriors.
2: Oh, I would have left the Warriors. Oh, but 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 <laughs> but but when you but when you're in a good situation, take for granted all the all the rhetoric and the narrative out there about uh, Kevin Durant joining the Warriors to try to win a win a championship. Not did he will. That's just the narrative out there, you know, the spin out there right now. Now think about that for a second.
3: Yeah, that, that, oh, they'd be a pretty talented team.
2: Oh, and, and all of them are young, too? Oh, only, only my only uh, question about, about that is, is Durant's uh, defense. I don't think his defense is on the same level with his offense's prowess. He needs to pick it up on the defensive end. With his skill set, he should be a much better defensive player. Yeah. Consistently. He's not consistent with his efforts on the defensive end. You you make so a that, valid point there. There would be no only concern about him joining the Warriors because I think they would take a step back defensively. And not to mention what right. they had to give up to, to add Durant to the roster.
3: Yeah, and then there's the whole chemistry thing would be tough. And... Yeah,
2: you, you have to think about all that too. The chemistry, the camaraderie. That it just kind of throws things out of balance for a month for a minute. I, I think I think if anybody could make a, a smooth transition to their team, because Durant has the uh, mentality of he don't have to be the, the man on the team. Obviously, because he lets Westbrook be the man for, for the most part. So I think he he could make a smooth transition in that regard.
3: Yeah, now now we're talking about Kevin Durant, one of the greatest players in the NBA today. You play with two of the greatest players ever, including Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, and among many, many other Hall of Famers. But but those two guys specifically, how are those similar and different as competitors?
2: The similarities between Larry, Kevin, and, and Michael that they're unquenchable desire to win and be successful. They had a thirst that just couldn't be quenched. And their drive and their ambition. And one thing I, I like about those three uh, players that I play with, and you could throw Scottish Pippen in there also, is that during their premium years, they got better every year. I always respected this. They they, they never gloated, uh, uh, got by on their past achievements. Every every summer, they got better. Every year they came back, they were a better player. And that's one of the reasons why I hold them in such high regard as athletes, because that's something that I try to do in my own personal career. I try to be a little bit better during my premium years every time I came back for, for the
0: upcoming season how how does how how does a player do that like w- when you go into an off season thinking do you think i need to add one more element to my game do you try to refine something in your game you think that might need a little enhancement how, what's the mentality in going into the summer especially for you because you were constantly in the playoffs winning championships you're playing very long seasons so you needed to rest as well how does how does a player go from great to even better over the off season.
2: Well, for me personally, I take uh, three weeks off. I don't do anything, let my body calm down, heal up a little bit, then I'm right back on the grind. What, 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 what makes great players great, in my opinion, they have great work ethics, a thirst to be better, you work on your weaknesses. You're always working on your weaknesses, whatever your weaknesses may be. You don't have a good left hand. You're not good going to your left. Your dribbling needs to improve. Your passing needs to improve. Your free throw shooting. Your shooting. And also, while you're working on your weaknesses, you're also working on your strengths also. And then also you're working on your defense because everybody can, can improve defensively. Always, because that's mental. That it has very little to do with talent. Defense is psychological, mental. You got to wanna be a good defensive player consistently. And so, those are the things that you got that you got to do to make yourself great and keep yourself great. You got to have a love affair with getting better. Matter of fact, you should be in love with the process because you're not always going to be rewarded with success. Especially when things are not going well because, from my perspective, sports mirrors life. It ebbs and it flows. When, you, when your game is, is ebbing, that's when you got to love the process of getting better and co- correcting what's wrong with your game Why you're not paying well.
0: Follow us on our social channels at lo Celtics on Twitter and at Locked On Celtics on Instagram. Yep.
3: Yeah, now, now you uh, you've talked about these guys, uh, Kevin McHale and Larry Bird. One uh, one thing, a few years ago, there was an article. I think it was in the Boston Globe. Uh, and one thing that stood out to me about it was that you don't seem to be too tight with those guys these days. W- what was your relationship like with those guys when you when you did play together?
2: We would never take. We, we, we—I we, wouldn't say we were friends. We never went out, and the dinner, movies. Besides, besides, they were married. And except for two years in my, my stay in Boston, when I was married, I was a single man. We don't have nothing in common except for basketball. I wouldn't—I wouldn't call them friends. The, the two players on the team that I would call friends would be Dennis Johnson and Bill Walton. They were my friends. Because we did things together. We hung out. We interacted with one another. Kevin, Larry, myself, we didn't interact off the court. So I never considered us to be friends. We are friendly and respectful towards one another, obviously. We wouldn't have the camaraderie around and the chemistry on the court. But I wouldn't call them friends. And it's nothing personal. Now, I don't, I don't want you to read any of this, that, that I got to uh, act to ground with them, because I don't. I respect them. We just not friends.
3: Now, how, how do you build such great chemistry with those guys if if you're not close? You, it seems like a lot of people think you have to be friends in the locker room no. to, to no, have you that
2: chemistry. Not. No, you don't have to be you know, going out to dinner in the movies, uh, off the court, on the court. We share uh, common gold. We, we, all of us want to achieve excellence. We're all willing to make sacrifices for that goal. And not to mention there's a very healthy respect between us. We all respect one another. I don't think that ever changed. We ain't got to be hugging and kissing. At least from my perspective anyways.
3: Yeah. Now, now you said one person who, who helped build that camaraderie was, was Red Auerbach from the top. Everyone I talked to seems to have a favorite Red Auerbach story. Do you have one?
2: I, I have a, uh, a favorite story, uh, something that, that Red told me, uh, because when, as you, as you probably remember, when I got traded from the Golden State Warriors to the Boston Celtics, there were some questions about me as a player and about my game, because I really hadn't established myself just yet. And so when Dave Cowens decided to uh, retire, during the, during the exhibition season, my first year in Boston, uh, Red came to me and uh, pulled me aside and told me that do not listen to the media and the critics because they can be very harsh. And he told me, you know what you can and cannot do, and just go out and be Robert Parrish. Do not listen to the noise because that's their job, the question, the second guess. And to critique you as a player. You just do you. And that's the most profound advice that Red ever gave me. And I respect him for that. Because he didn't have to say a word to me. It's my job to go out and try to fill that void that Dave Cowan's left.
3: Now, how much did you need that particular advice to to kind of come in and be yourself?
2: I didn't need it, personally, because I'm self-motivated. I don't need any outside motivation. My motivation comes within because obviously I was good enough to be in the NBA. So it's up to me to improve and be better so I can stay in the league. Because it's one thing to get drafted into the NBA, but you gotta do whatever it takes to stay there, be a profession. Because I feel like if you're not trying to get better as a person, as an athlete you're doing it yourself, your teammates, the game, the organization, a huge disservice.
0: Uh, the NBA season is a very long grind. Uh, it's 82 games plus the playoffs. Uh, you're you're working with these guys every day, traveling, and not only that. Back back when you were playing, you guys were traveling, coach, right?
2: You no, know, we were in first class. First but,
0: class. Uh, we, we <laughs> you were commercial. Pilot. You're we flying commercial.
6: had private plane, is that what you had? That's what I
0: mean. I mean, you <laughs> mean yeah, but you were flying commercial. You had to like yeah. schedule yeah. flights, right? So, first of all, on a back to back, can you explain a little bit the because now nowadays on a back to back, guys can get on their private plane. It's waiting for them. You get to the next city, and it's still a grind, but but it's not what you guys had to do. So can you explain a little bit of what the process of playing a back-to-back game was back back in the 80s?
2: Oh, it, it, it was definitely a grind back then because a back-to-back. That means you had like a 7 o'clock flight or 6.30 flight. So that means you got to wake up call at like 4 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning to get to the airport. Plus you got to take into consideration all the luggage that you got to get checked. And so, and then and then you you not getting enough rest because after the game you wound up, you don't get to sleep. At least for me, I didn't, I didn't get to sleep till like 1, 2 in the morning because I'm so wound up after the game from all that physical exertion. And so by the time you doze off, it's time to get up. Then you're not getting your proper rest. And now your body clock is all thrown off. And that hampers Sometimes it of your performance the following night because you don't get enough rest because you because you're sleeping all day, which I don't think is good because then you at least for me it makes me lethargic when I'm trying to make up for lost sleep and then you're trying to wake your body up and get ready for the for the aim the, the following night. So it, it it definitely was challenging. So I, I, I did it just put for me it just put more emphasis. On keeping myself in the best physical condition that I possibly possibly could be in, and to maintain it, because I think that helps with the physical challenges of being over an NBA season.
0: So you would get a, a four o'clock wake up call. You'd go to the hotel. You would you have to wait in line to personally check your bags.
2: No, we, we didn't have to uh, check out that We had uh, an,
0: an equipment manager. Okay, thank God. That, that did all that, but you still got to get up. You got to
2: pack, you know, and, and uh, you got to get to the airport. You, you pretty much sleepwalking, at least for me sometimes, because it always took me a while to unwind after a game.
0: That's still amazing. And then you'd have to go out and, and bang with Lambeer the next night.
2: Oh, definitely. That's where the, that's where the professionalism comes in. You got to be a professional. Every night. I always had to the, had the mindset. Somebody's watching me play for the first time. So I took it as a personal challenge to be the best I could be every night out. For that person that's seeing me play for the first time. I thought it was important for me to be my very best every night
0: out. So this is a long grind. It's tough. You're playing against... I think back then the competition, so many great players and so many great teams. You 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 spent a lot of time doing very serious work uh on the court, but the locker room, there had to be some fun moments because you got to break the stress and everything. So, what's what's the funniest thing that you remember from your days in the NBA in the locker room?
2: Well, it wasn't so much In the locker room, uh, we had this uh, radio uh, commentator, Johnny Mose, and he was a a chain smoker. He smoked cigarette after cigarette after cigarette. So one of my teammates, Danny Ainge, uh, got these, I don't know what you would call them, these canned cigarettes that that explode after (laughs) you light them, at the explosive tip. And so Danny replaced three or four of Johnny most cigarettes with these <laughs> explosive <laughs> cigarettes. <laughs> and so Johnny Johnny Most always slept on the plant every flight he went to sleep. <laughs> and so when he woke up, first thing he did was was he he lit up a cigarette. And so he would light up. Uh, a cigarette, and then it would explode. He'd be like, what the MF? <laughs> and then he'd take out another cigarette, and it would explode. He like, what MF? Bothered my cigarette? And then he'd take out another one, and it would explode. And then he getting up ranting up and down the hall, I mean, up, yeah, down the walkway. And of course, the steward just got to intervene after that, because you're not supposed to be walking up down the aisleway, you, you know, and throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> and so we all, we all about falling out of our seats with laughter. Everybody thought it was funny, but Johnny most.
0: <laughs> that is an amazing story. I, I have to say, that's a perfect place for us to end this conversation. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I do want to say that people do have an opportunity to come out and meet you in Saugus, Friday, April 15th from 7 to 9 p.m. At the I Love Boston Sports Store at the Square One Mall in Saugus. So, if guys, if you want to come out and meet Robert Parrish, who has just had given us an amazing conversation, uh, Friday, April fifteenth, from seven to nine at the Square One Mall in Saugus. Uh, Robert Parrish, thank you very, very much for your time. It was a great thank conversation. Both
2: of you for the memories, and I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you much.
0: Thank you. <laughs> It was a lot of fun talking to Chief. I mean, he's he's great. And uh, now coming up is a conversation tomorrow in two parts with Tommy Heinsohn. And I'll tell you, Tommy Heinsohn wasn't quite as complimentary about Robert Parrish, which part of the conversation that he doesn't think that Robert Parrish. Was one of the 50 greatest players of all time. So that's an interesting conversation to kind of follow up this one with. So, tomorrow and Friday, a very long conversation in two parts. With Tommy Heinsohn. So, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. If you have, please give that five star rating, that good written review. It's a great help as we continue to try and grow this podcast. Before we go, I want to share with you one of the best programs that we've got here on the Lockdown Podcast Network. It's called Rejecting the Screen. They've got amazing interviews with NBA people uncovering never told stories or unknown tales of the NBA. You can subscribe to Rejecting the Screen on iTunes or follow on Spotify. Here now is a collection of the best of Rejecting the Screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko.
7: Hey, it's Noah Kozlov from Rejecting the Screen on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam Stanko and I get together twice a week to talk hoops with folks who have touched the NBA on all sorts of levels, from all-stars, coaches, executives, and media members. Recently, the number three pick in the 2006 NBA draft, Adam Morrison, joined us to tell a story about how Kobe Bryant, his former Lakers teammate with whom he won two rings, went above and beyond to lift his spirits.
5: It was a year after I was out, and so I wasn't playing, obviously. And I was really depressed, and I was basically a hermit in my own house. And I was, didn't go out in the community at all. And, and, you know, if you did, it was one of people asking you, why aren't you playing? And I was, you know, I'm 26 at the time, or whatever I was. And, you know, number three pick, and just really low point in my life. And I get a text from Robert Laura, the the lakers security and was kobe's like one of his best friends and he said hey what's your address uh i got something in the mail for you and i get the package and it's um an autographed jersey from didier drogba um who is my favorite player i'm a chelsea fan you know it's from kobe and game worn jersey you know signed didier drogba to adam best wishes and i always thought kobe you know, made a phone call, which is, would be fine. It's still cool as shit. It's unbelievable. The night he passed, I'm scrolling through reading everything and I'm emotional and on Chelsea's, you know, Instagram page, it's him with Didier Drogba, holding up a Jersey and it says to Adam, best wishes. So he went up to my favorite player, wow. got it signed for me without me even asking and sent it to me when he knew I was, was low. That's that's what Kobe Bryant was, man. He was just one of those dudes who understood his own aura.
7: When four time all star Sean Marion hung out with us, not only did he tell us that he tried to recruit Kobe Bryant to the Suns the summer that the Suns ended up signing Steve Nash and Quentin Richardson. He also told us that his 2006 Suns team should have won the title in the 2011 preseason. His Mavericks teammate Jason Terry was so confident they'd win it all. He got a tattoo of the trophy.
8: We was at Deshaun Stevenson house. We had a game in Orlando, and um, we went to his house and you know, a few through the team, and we uh, was over there having Barb eating and stuff. And then this tattoo guy came over there, and jet guy tattooed a tra- trophy on his on his bicep. I was like, damn, dude. I was like, for real? I was like, okay, okay. I'm loving it. I'm loving the, the the confidence and the swag we have right now. So like, let alone, don't nobody else know, Don't nobody else in the world know we do we doing this and we feeling this right now. Because everybody everybody in the league has aspirations. A lot of teams have aspirations to win championships, but it ain't but maybe a handful that actually actually can do it. You know what I'm saying? So we was one of those teams, and like we sitting there going through this process and looking at this, and uh, yeah, we was like, yeah.
7: Did he tell you, hey, I'm gonna get a tattoo of the trophy? Did you know as it was happening, or once he got it, he showed you? Eh, he's got a tattoo of the trophy.
9: Well, it, it was called it was called
8: all kind of one sequence. We been, hes like, we won the championship this year. I'm about to get a trophy right now. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we were like, okay,
2: that's what's up. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> 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 you don't get no better than that. Come on now, you don't get no Damn better. Yeah, it does it. Don't know. get no better than that.
7: Kevin Willis never did win a ring, but he was an all star and was one of the most dominant rebounders of his era. He spent year 16 of his career with the Toronto Raptors when Tracy McGrady was in year two and Vince Carter was a rookie. As expected, he had some pretty good advice for those kids. They used to
8: call me OG, old head, things like that. And I was, I think I was in my 15th year or somewhere up in there. And it was like, yeah, man. I just tell him and T Mac. I say, T Mac, first of all, you need to you need to stop falling asleep on the bench and practice. You got to you got to stay awake. You, you you keep falling asleep. I just tell him, and Vince, you guys rather hope that you get the fifteen years because you you little snot nosed rookies. But you know they, they were they were they were great great rookies,
7: great talent. Speaking of vets and rookies, when Suns legend Eddie Johnson got traded to Seattle. Gary Payton was a rookie point guard, and since everyone loves a good one about GP running his mouth, Eddie delivered. And I remember one
6: day at practice, I was there for about two weeks, and I remember he kept disrupting practice, and Gary's a smart guy, he had, he had a right to talk in that regard, because I got to know him, he really knows the game, obviously, he's a Hall of Famer, he's one of the greatest defenders ever, now, but at the time he was a rookie. And rookies were not supposed to talk under my watch. Because that's, that's what it was for me. And I just couldn't get over the fact that this rookie kept talking. You know, and I let it go for two weeks. And I asked Nate McMillan, I said, is it a point in time, man, when you all, like, going to say something to him? And they was like, man, you know. You know, Nate kind of shook it off. And I said, well, I'm going to say something. And lo and behold, one practice, he's got the yapping and, you know, coaches going over stuff and he yapping, he yapping. And I just finally said, would you shut the F up?
7: About 15 years later in Seattle, P.J. Carlesimo was coaching the Sonics with rookie Kevin Durant. When P.J. came on the show, he revealed how ahead of the curve his staff was when KD was on the floor
8: one good thing we really did with him was we exposed him to a lot of things in terms of we played him at 2 we played him at 3 we played him at 4 we put him in pick and rolls we encouraged him to shoot threes it's his only bad three point percentage if you look at his percentage year by year uh in the NBA it's far and away the lowest one but again uh in those days it was even a bigger jump from college three to NBA three, and Kevin didn't shoot a lot of threes uh, at Texas, and we, we had him do that, and at times we were criticized, like, why are they playing this guy at guard? Why like why are they putting him in pick and rolls? You know, Why are they letting him dribble the ball up the court? Because he could.
7: Staying with coaches, Brendan Haywood won a title with the Mavs in 2011, and when he joined LeBron in the Cavs under David Blatt, it was obvious when a head coaching change was needed. We
8: could see late in ball games, if he had to draw plays, we could see he was super nervous, his hands would be shaking. He'd have to give the clipboard to Larry Drew. Larry Drew would draw the plays up. And when you see that, you understand. Like, this dude ain't ready. He's not ready for this. He's not ready for this, and it's not his fault because he he thought he was taking on a rebuilding project. And then next thing you know, LeBron James calls up David Blatt and says, I'm coming. And now, instead of taking on a rebuilding project with Kyrie and Deion Waiters at the forefront of it, and Tristan Thompson, you have LeBron James and Kevin Love there, and now you're competing for a title. Uh, I just don't, I, I think just Coach Black got hit with too much too soon, but it was easy to tell right away that Coach Black
7: was probably in over his head. Just like a head coach can lose a team, a woman can tear one apart as well. Butch Beard was an assistant with the Mavericks in the mid-90s as Grammy Award-winning R&B singer Tony Braxton came in between stars Jason Kidd and Jimmy Jackson.
8: I mean, it was, it, it ended up being Jason and Jimmy, all right, Jason and Tony. Tony's not caring about either one of them. And then the team was taking sides. So I'll never forget, we had
6: we, we, we had a damn team meeting. And I said, guys, it's a woman that's breaking us apart. And it's. If the woman is that good, please. I want to see what her mother looks like. Because I want (laughs) to date her mother.
7: Come on. Entertainment and the NBA will always be intertwined. The first to do that on the media side was the New York Post's Peter Vesey, who was also the sideline reporter for the national broadcasts on NBC. We asked Peter about his post-game interview with Karl Malone after the Jazz lost in the finals to the Bulls in 1997. The YouTube clip is titled Peter Vesey tries to get punched
9: Carl was always a great interview he would never not answer a question you know we really didn't get along i i disliked him on many levels respected him on many other levels as a player but you know he was a dirty player and the first time that they showed it to me i didn't even remember it okay so i did this interview i had no agenda I was just going to ask him some tough questions, and um, I didn't care how tough because I really didn't like him. So, <laughs> but I knew he was going to answer them. <laughs> so, so I, I wasn't—I didn't feel unsafe, and I didn't feel like I was doing something wrong. And it really never—it never dawned on me that that came off the way it did. You know, my son would say to me, he "said Wow, like what, what were you thinking?" I was just doing my job, but I I, uh, I had no mindset going in other than I knew he was going to answer my question. In
7: 1997, former head coach Hubie Brown was broadcasting for TNT, but five years later, was hired by Jerry West midseason to coach the Memphis Grizzlies. Point guard Earl Watson was in his second year with the team and was thoroughly confused when it all went down.
1: Jerry West introduced Hubie. I'm 22 years old, we're Memphis, losing franchise. First time in my life i ever been a part of anything that was losing. So it was all new to me. Just everything was like new to me. I never, uh, it made me, it almost made me sick. He introduces Hubie Brown and I'm thinking, I got to call Bob because we just hired the TNT guy. This is crazy. <laughs> I didn't know his full resume, right? So the first thing he says to us, he takes the podium and he says, First, I would like to say, you all are fucking losers. None of you are winners. If you was a winner, the other guy wouldn't be packing his stuff with his family. See, you got on fire. You're fucking losers. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner.
7: The Bob that Earl referred to was Bob Myers, his agent at the time and now the president of the Golden State Warriors. Stories like these are a taste of what rejecting the screen sounds like every week. So we hope you'll join us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or download and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Once again, you can follow Rejecting the Screen on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes.